This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 10th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Well, coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with the author David Badanis. And an artwork by Ai Weiwei goes on display to celebrate Lunar New Year at a dry cleaner's in the east end of London. More on that story ahead. First, though, here's the news. More than one million Palestinians in the southern Gaza city of Rafah are braced for Israel to complete a plan to evacuate them and launch a ground assault against Hamas fighters in the area. Aid agencies warned that large numbers of civilians could die in the Israeli offensive and the UN-Palestinian Refugee Agency said it did not know how long it could work in such a high-risk operation. Former Pakistani prime ministers and bitter rivals Nawaz Sharif and Imran Khan have both declared victory in elections marred by delayed results and militant attacks, throwing the country into further political turmoil. Analysts had predicted there may be no clear winner, adding to the woes of a country struggling to recover from an economic crisis while it grapples with rising militancy in a deeply polarised political environment. And Guinness World Records has told Frenchman Richard Plowd that his 7.2-metre matchstick Eiffel Tower is a record height, a day after initially rejecting it for using the wrong matches. Plowd said he'd been on an emotional roller coaster this week after spending 4,200 hours over eight years on building his model from more than 706,000 matches and 23 kilos of glue. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. David Badanas, have you ever built a matchstick Eiffel Tower? I have not built an Eiffel Tower. However, I have spent uh, much too much of my life building card castles. Card castles? Card castles. You put cards next to each other horizontally to make a horizontal level. Then you put flat cards on top. Then you put another level on top of that. And if you're really good, as Albert Einstein apparently was when he was a little boy, he made them up to four or five levels. When they blew over, his sister said he would take a shrug his shoulders, take a deep breath and do it again. That's extraordinary. Well, in fact, one of the books you've written is called Einstein's Greatest Mistake, The Life of a Flawed Genius. What was his greatest mistake? His greatest mistake was a, a confidence issue. When he was young, people said, oh, Einstein, you're wrong about everything. So he stuck to his guns and he was proven right. When he was older, people said, Einstein, you're wrong about everything. Quantum mechanics. He stuck to his guns and he was proven wrong. Reminds me a little bit of Tony Blair in Kosovo versus Iraq. First time right, it was stick to the guns. Second time, eh, he should have listened a bit more. So you wrote that book on Einstein, but then you wrote E equals MC squared, which is also about... Einstein. Some people have obsessions about fast cars. Some people have it footballers. I have it with uh, hairy German men with large hair. (laughs) Okay, what do you know about China, though? Because I would like to start looking at that. Uh, Some really interesting pieces in, in the sort of global press today about China and the economic crisis that it's going through. And uh, uh, well, let's let's start by having a look at this this one in The Guardian. I mean, what, what essentially is the problem? It's, it's the property 
market there. Yeah, uh, people get excited with a rising economy. Uh, you need new housing and you need new factories. And property prices were going up. It kind of makes sense to do that. Also, a lot of Chinese people uh, don't trust their government. And if you thought if you put money in property, it's going to be absolutely safe. Always invest in land. They're not making more of it. The problem is it was wildly overdone. Yeah. Uh, the Telegraph is uh, saying that the West hasn't grasped the scale of the disaster facing China and that so much of the, con- the uh, economy is, is controlled by the state, essentially by one man. Uh, and, and yet that is not really being understood. Correct. Because on the surface, it looks like a capital society. There's companies and there's Western investors. And many Westerners dealing with China will deal with a factory manager who's uh, uh, making products for them. So it seems like a normal uh, country. And then every now and then you find out that heads of major corporations are arrested. I don't know what's happening to them and stuff. And at least uh, with the current government in the U.S. and Britain, that doesn't happen. So it's really, there's some overlaps, but it's really very different. What it means, oh, sorry, go ahead. Carry on. I was just going to say, mistakes can ramify. Uh, Japan, a, a generation ago, got caught in a deflationary spiral. If prices are going down, who wants to invest in uh, new, uh, new, uh, new, new developments? Same thing in China. If prices start collapsing down, people are going to be very cautious about investment. Plus, as I mentioned, there's a lack of trust in the government. If the government statistics say X, people think, why are they saying that? What's their purpose? Yeah. I mean, so there's a new report out, figures released on Thursday, that showed consumer prices fell by 0.8% in January uh, compared with a year earlier. And that outstripped uh, ec- uh, economists' uh, expectations. It marked the biggest contraction in 15 years. It's a huge thing. If I were um, a, a young person living in London or New York, I would think, wow, deflation has to be good. Uh, my property prices are going to go down. I can get a better place. But in the long term, it means who's going to be building the places if you're losing money. It makes more sense in a deflationary place to keep all your money literally under the bed. Yeah. This is what I keep asking people. I keep asking risk analysts, if the whole world is, is, you know, going to end quite soon, what should we do? And very clever people are saying to me, buy gold and bury it. The shame with that is the uh, two things. One, they might well be right on financial costs, but look what it does to society rather than, ooh, here's a wonderful thing to do. Britain in the Industrial Revolution or America, I don't know, in the, when it was growing well in the 1960s. Take your money and invest. Uh, make new factories, new, new schools, um, uh, new products. Um, there's kind of a withdrawing within, a tightening, a fear and lack of uh, trust in society when this happens. Well, there's a great piece in The Times today about just that, about trying to expand out, about trying to think outside the box and make new ideas happen. And that's very much on the, on the theme of, of, of your previous work. I know your, your book, Electric Universe, you wrote about sort of exciting, it was a science book essentially, but written in a bit like a thriller with exciting ideas. Yeah, people didn't know where electricity was, where it comes from. And also when this brand new object arrived, are you telling me that there's tiny little things that are invisible that go through wires and can make huge bits of machinery work. If that, if, by the way, if it wasn't true, it would seem like the most incredible conspiracy theory. But it turns it is true. Uh, there are tiny little things that are floating around, which we can channel through wires, which can do amazing stuff, uh, make cars move great distances, control airplanes uh, flying through the air. It seems astonishing. Uh, what I liked in that book, The Electric Universe, was this, it started getting popular a bit over a century ago. Um, how did that change society? You drop this one brand new technology in and you see how society changes. There's this wonderful line. Does money make you good or bad? Does power make you good or bad? And the answer is, it doesn't make you good or bad. It reveals what's there. So the fault lines in society are being amplified uh, in the way that they were by electricity 
century ago. Think of a new tech now. Think of what happens when Donald Trump gets AI or um, a political leader you like gets AI. They'll use it in different ways. Yeah. Well, let's look at this story. This is from The Times, uh, and it's about uh, Britain uh, could get new tech that could control the weather, and in fact, new tech that could do almost anything. What, what, what's the gist of this? Um, so there's notions that if there's a, a big storms coming in on the North Sea, perhaps in theory one can release drones that will cause the storms to uh, uh, just exhaust themselves in the ocean, uh, in the North Sea, before they get to the Thames and begin to flood London. Uh, the person who's uh, going to be running this new British agency, he's not saying that this is a definite technology, but it's a, a for example. It's the sort of thing that uh, we should have in, in look-ahead agencies. There's a good thing and a bad thing about it. Oh, my God, I sound like a lawyer with two hands on the one <laughs> hand, on the other hand. But really, really, whenever there's technology, there's the good and the bad. The good is that agencies like this can sometimes produce wonderful uh, new products, long-term investment, and give a sort of a confidence to society to think ahead. The negative is that uh, they often go into blind alleys, uh, and they often suggest a technology which is not really uh, productive. Uh, the agency that Dominic Cummings really loved in America, called uh, DARPA, which is big in the 1960s and stuff, helped develop, uh, I think it's correct to say, developed Agent, Agent Orange, this terrible chemical that uh, produced deformities in many uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, and, and actually killed a certain number of American soldiers. Um, technologies to control the weather might uh, work really well, but they might just be get, give a get-out-of-jail-free card to the oil companies. Also, as we know from what's happened with the population of animals in Australia, it can go terribly wrong. You can make an intervention in one place, and all sorts of subtle interconnections through the climate could be there. Absolutely. Rabbits, I'm thinking, in exactly. Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's called the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, largely seen as the brainchild of Dominic Cummings. Uh, and as you say, not just the weather that, that it's, it's there for. And basically, they've, they've got a lot of funds. And this is, the, the idea is it won't be tied up with red, red tape. The agency has some money and will just be able to go and develop things it thinks will make the world a if Muhammad place. Ali, If Muhammad Ali were to give me boxing lessons, I would listen to Mr. Ali because he knows a great deal about making boxing come true. Uh, Mr. Cummings, I believe, was a, an advisor <laughs> to a prime minister who had a vast majority in parliament. And few people would say his administration was a great success. Well, that's very true. But the point is that it's not Cummings running it. He just... Yeah. There are some blessings in life, and this is one of them. <laughs> Let's stay with electricity, though, and something that even reading the story breaks my heart because the, the headline is Inside the Garage That Transforms Classic Cars Into Electric Motors. Now, David, until uh, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, I had the most beautiful old vintage um, open-top Golf. And I spoke to so many people asking how I could convert it to electric because it just fell foul of every single kind of pollution law. Um, and I was told minimum was £40,000. And indeed, this is what this company does. So it hasn't got any cheaper in the year and a half since I gave my car away. What possessed me? Anyway, here we are. Tell us about being inside the uh, the garage that transforms classic cars into electric motors. I think it's a wonderful idea. There's beautiful cars. There are those little. Think of all the classics we like. The the Jaguar from the 1960s. The the little MGs sporting around in the 1950s. And if you go back, those beautiful Rolls Royces from before uh, uh, the Second World War. And many of them are, as you've pointed out, are really terrible to run. They handle poorly, and the engines are uh, fairly grotesque, uh, very uh, primitive by our standards. And they, uh, they, they, 
They just soak up petrol and, and they pour out fumes. So the idea is take out the old engine, put it in a battery. Turns out it's not so simple. That's why it can cost 40,000 pounds or more. Uh, electric cars run very differently from petrol cars. In fact, they, they, they run much more cleanly, not just cleanly, but they're much more efficient. Little motors on each wheel. You don't have to have um, a uh, the, the same sort of gears we have. But that means the entire inside has to be really, really different. You don't just put in a battery. You have to change the whole way that the drive is done and where the motors are, are placed. Mm. So it costs a lot of money. On the other hand, it's kind of like having an MOT on oneself. Wouldn't it be nice that you could just fix everything uh, and still be you? Wouldn't that be extraordinary? Yeah. I mean, as far as I understood it at the time when I was investigating this, one of the biggest problems is um, weight and the centre of gravity. So on a Golf, it sits quite low on the road. And the minute you start putting a battery in there, uh, it, you're, you're, you're messing with the, with the centre of gravity sure. and, and all the rest of it. Batteries today, uh, they're actually they're modified rocks. They're rocks that weigh hundreds of pounds. Uh, these rocks have wonderful properties about storing electricity and moving electricity around, but they weigh a real lot. Uh, petrol is really dense. Uh, the, the amount of energy you get from a little bit of petrol is huge. Think of what happens when a bit of um, uh, olive oil uh, splatters onto a, uh, a stove at home. Pew! It, it explodes up and just a little drop explodes. That's because it's the oil similar to the oil in, in, in a car, in, in petrol. So it's a real high density of energy. Batteries have a much lower density of energy, which is why they weigh hundreds of pounds. And if you think about it, I would find it very uncomfortable if somebody says, David, you, you know your backpack that weighs um, uh, six kilos that you carry around your shiny, trendy Mac computer? Would you mind just putting on this one of 140 pounds and uh, walking around London with it? I would say, uh, maybe if you pay me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so who could do with more money? Soho House, apparently. Are you a member of a club? I, I try really, really hard not to be uh, because it seems uh, um, I'm joining the uh, crowd and all that sort of stuff. On the other hand, whenever people have invited me to Soho House, I've loved it. It is so cool and so beautiful. You feel like, I don't know, James Bond could be walking around there and it's like it's ornate and it's Victorian. And also because it's a club, uh, everybody's on fairly good behavior and you don't have to do any uh, drawing up and cooking and putting away the plates. It just is a little bit of heaven dropped on earth. Unfortunately, there's a great way to expand, uh, get lots of loans, have uh, low membership prices, and um, just pay as much as you want for your products. It comes back to bite you later. What's happened? Exactly. It's kind of like the WeWork over expansion. And now on the other hand, the idea behind these private members clubs is great. A huge number of people you see in cafes, I've been uh, among their ranks, go to cafes and sit and type, uh, do their work. Imagine that there was a cafe where you're kind of allowed to chat to other people. There's some social things going on and the setting's really, really beautiful. Of course, people will pay for that. The problem is the economics are hard. Uh, the centers of the world's big cities are expensive places. Mm. Uh, and, of course, the, the, this idea of uh, Soho House being in financial peril has really knocked their, their shareholders, their prices. Uh, and lots of, uh, lots of uh, lawyers offering to, to do a class action, I understand. Uh, oh, totally, because then people can say, oh, I invested in it or I put my uh, price in and it's going down. Maybe if Chinese um, uh, uh, ordinary people are looking for investments somewhere in the West that might do better than some of the uh, housing estates in, uh, 
in a provincial Chinese cities, it might be a source of income here. <laughs> so invest, te- yeah. invest inside I, her house. Yeah. I, I tease a little bit, but the idea of arbitrage across the world economy is what's made our economy strong in the past generation. That if there are opportunities in Britain or America or China, that capital in the best sense can flow to the right place and help it. Where there's good returns, it's usually a sign, if you haven't had regulatory capture, that people are getting a product that they want. So in a sense, it would be lovely if things could sluice back and forth. With the modern uh, politics, where people are getting uh, sort of beggar, uh, uh, disliking their neighbors and more uh, defensive about themselves, you don't get the opportunities that much for useful money to slosh around. Uh, Instead of it feeling like a useful investment, it feels like a foreign takeover. Uh, You can spin the same thing in two different ways. Uh, now, Soho House obviously has branches all over the world. It's not—it's called Soho. It's not necessarily just in Soho. Uh, and Soho, when we say that, we think of seediness, or at least that's what Soho used to be about. It was full of brothels and sex shops and all the rest of it. Sex shops and sex toys, however, have had a complete makeover. Uh, and there's this great piece in the New York Times about <laughs> smart sex toys. Yes. Tell us more. Um, I, I'm slightly embarrassed. Um, but I shall, I shall try to be bold and accurate. Apparently, there are um, uh, vibrating objects which can now um, send information in uh, real time to one's uh, cell phone. Uh, I'm impressed by that. What I was more impressed reading the article is that there's people, uh, usually of the female persuasion, who use these vibrating objects and monitor their cell phones at the same time. They say, well, this is only sensible. When I go running, I check to see my my oxygen saturation levels, and I can optimize and maximize and get a real thrill in jogging. Why cannot this feedback and electronic information apply to every part of my life? Apparently, it's sometimes a problem when people compare the charts on their cell phone with private satisfaction and satisfaction with their partner. Extraordinary stuff. The only comment I wish to make on this is that my sex toy also bakes bread and does the washing up. (laughs) You are luckier than most people in life. And can I also say something? Speaking as a male human being, he's going to be so smug later today. Uh, I want to very quickly uh, just have a last look uh, at the Bayo Tapestry. Mm. Uh, And... uh, it depicts my ancestor, I'll have you know. All right. Harold Godwinson. Oh, oh, oh okay. Because I was going to say, if it depicts one's ancestor, there's many ones one can say. Do you see that guy on the third frame exactly. over there standing, standing, cowering behind the shield? He survived. He's my great, great, great. <laughs> Well, I, I was then going to go on and say, I think it depicts almost everybody in Europe's ancestor <laughs> by now, really. Yes, indeed. Um, but what's the story behind this? Why is it in the news? Well, the uh, the beautiful ta- uh, tapestry was done uh, uh, not long after the... Um, uh, some people would say it was an invasion of England by cruel outsiders. Some people say it was bringing back to where it belonged, a land that had been cruelly uh, torn from its proper owners. Anyways, it's not finished. Or if it was finished, the edge was torn off. Beautiful long tapestry, uh, meter after meter after meter. And the question is, should we leave it the way it is, where the end is not there, either torn off and decayed? Or should we have great artists today imagine what it should be and put it back in? Now, this is a giant question in the uh, in restoration of art. There's um, uh, Think of some of the buildings in London, which have had uh, sculptures decayed by, by air pollution. We could either put some sort of plastic covering on them uh, so that it 
uh, stops the decay. Or we could have artists today, many of whom are very, very skilled, go back and try to rebuild the structure, rebuild the sculpture, so it looks the way when it was initially made, maybe in Queen Victoria's time. You have that very, very much in Italy with the beautiful old paintings. Should I just put a glaze on a, on a decayed um, uh, uh, da Vinci to stop further decay? Or should I have somebody really using the sources, trying to paint it the way it would have been the first day it came out of da Vinci's studio? And what's your take on that? This is one of the uh, cases I don't think there's a good answer. Uh, uh, either one is a shame. The advantage of doing the former in the short term is that you stop the decay and you still have the, uh, the opportunity for people later to develop it. Archaeologists often have that modesty. They'll do a dig using all our techniques really thoroughly, but they'll leave some parts of the, of the archaeological dig undone. Because they say, well, there might be future technologies far better than ours, ground-seeking radar or something like that. So we don't want to mess it up for the future. So I would say if you are going to finish it off, do it really well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a new artwork because I have a guest for us. Now, today is the Lunar New Year and celebrations will be taking place across the world. One such celebration here in London is Ai Weiwei's collaboration with the online marketplace Avant Art to display his new piece at the Steam Room, a dry cleaner's in Haggerston. So this may seem like a strange place to exhibit art, but over the years, the Steam Room's become known for its Lunar New Year displays, and it's been used by the major London fashion brands, such as Roxander and Simon Rocha. So joining me now is the owner of the Steam Room, who is Tony Chung. Tony, hello to you. Hello, hello. Gong Hei Fa Choi, wishing all the listeners growth, creativity and prosperity in the year of the Wood Dragon. Thank you very Tony. much. <laughs> now, Tony, tell us about your background and your business, The Steam Room. So um, we're uh, a dry cleaners, like a normal dry cleaners, um, but we do have a lifestyle store and I create our own prints and I design all the merchandise there. And every year we would do exhibitions uh, to celebrate the Lunar New Year. And because you're actually a product designer by by trade. Yes, uh, that was about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And what came first, the design outlet or the the dry cleaners? Um, So the design, um, I graduated as a designer and I worked in Hong Kong for a few years and... And then I had to sort of come back to sort of look after my my parents' Chinese takeaway and family. So I had to sort of like give give up on 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 those um, that that dream of mine. And hence turning your dry cleaners into this this fabulous artistic space. So tell us more about your Lunar New Year artistic tradition. So um, the Lunar New Year is it's all about um, it's about family. It's about special times with loved ones. Um, it's about people traveling through distance to celebrate together, you know. So, like, um, it, it's time when we honor our ancestors and um, reinforce, like, family bonds and connections. So, um, because of this, I started to host Lunar Year um, events during COVID lockdown because with dry cleaning, um, we're classed as essential services and... During that time, we were the only uh, premises that was allowed to open, um, but also that meant that we didn't have um, finance, like there wouldn't be, um, the government wouldn't sort of like help us in any way. So we just opened the shop just to um, 
just to make a living sort of thing. And then um, we hosted events. So for the Lunar Year, we did, um, because many of the Asians couldn't go home to celebrate with their family, I just felt like we could invite all these artists to come and celebrate. So the first event that we had, we invited about 35 artists and makers into this into our little shop where we could just celebrate together. And you've continued to do it ever since. So, Tony, what is Ivant Art and how does your collaboration work? I created a... A, a like a fingerprint for teaching people how to um, using their finger as a measurement. So it resonated with me. So that was the, my first approach. Um, and Avanti Art is um, created a marketplace that was through Instagram. And that really connected because during the lockdown times, that's how I connected with all the artists I met that connected that. So everything sort of was very similar to sort of what we do. And I loved how they worked with a lot of leading contemporary artists like Iwai, Jenny Holtz, Anish Kapoor to create limited edition works that was accessible for everyone. You know, to sort of like having a, a signed copy of authentic Iwawa work was possible. And, you know, I loved how that accessibility works. And it sort of is very similar to the events I, I host in the shop. So tell us about the Iwawa piece that you're showing and what it means, because it's hugely symbolic. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the Guardian portrays the artist as... Uh, a divine guardian, like um, we call Moon Sun in Cantonese. It's a figure of protection and good fortune. And it's normally like placed on indoors in China, in Hong Kong. And it's known for strong protective qualities and it repels like bad omens and negative influences. Tell us more. Um, yes, so how sort of I Wai Wei uses himself as the divine guardian and he is surrounded by like his sort of previous pieces um like the the twitter with the laptop um um he would have the the sunflower seeds of, of the when he had uh when he had the installation at the tates um uh, the CCTV cameras, and so it reflected his works through through all the years. Mm. And I, I love the idea of um, he's, he has banknotes folded into paper planes. Yes, that's right as well. Uh, and that, and, of course, goes back to him being accused of tax evasion. Yes, and it, his sort of fans would send um, paper planes of of hundred ren to over the walls for him. And uh, river crabs? What, why why is there river crabs in there? Uh, so that part, I, 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 I'm afraid I don't know. Oh, I think, it, well, I, according to this, <laughs> I'm told it's about the, that it marks the um, demolition of his studio in Shanghai. So the river crab, I'm told, is a, is a homophone for harmony, a government slogan which was co-opted online for covert communication, suffused with irony. I mean, it's just, there's such rich, um, such rich meaning in this piece, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, and in and, uh, handcuffs, of course, he's dressed in traditional costume in this. Uh, and there's a dragon. Uh, just before we, we go, Tony, tell us about the, the role of the dragon generally. Why is it so so prominent within Chinese art? Um, 
it shows um, superiority, power, um, uh, longevity. Um, uh, sorry, I've just lost the words. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. But it, but but often, um, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking of sort of uh, occasions I've seen to mark uh, Lunar New Year, and there is often a dragon, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. I've got my friend David Badanis here in the studio with me. David, have you been to any Chinese New Year ceremonies? I, I've been to um, uh, uh, bastardized ones where they're uh, um, uh, mixed in Western cities. And traditionally, um, we think that there's a purity in China and there's a, uh, a, a, a it diminishes when it goes into Western places. But China, as we know, is a, is a huge place and it itself grew up over time. So I think what we're seeing with the uh, uh, popularized dragons, the way they're done in Western cities, often differently than the way they're done in China. We're seeing the way that cultures evolve. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony, where and how can people see the Ai Weiwei artwork in the steam room, your dry cleaners in Haggerston? Yes, um, we're open like six days a week. um, It's from now to the 16th of February. Excellent. And they can also, I think, they'll be able to see it online uh, through Avanti Art. Yes. Excellent. And to see it in real life, it's good to come to the steam room. Absolutely. I intend to do just that. Tony Chung, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And David Badanis, thank you too. Thank you very, very much. And thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. Monocle on Saturday will return next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.